We Will Not Be Tamed, a Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation podcast that encourages all Texans to get involved in conserving the wild things and wild places of our state. I'm Lydia Saldani with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, and today we're coming to you from a, a backyard in Dripping Springs, Texas, and I'm with Edgar Diaz. Edgar is the owner and founder, how else did you describe yourself, of Sightline Provisions, and also a We Will Not Be Tamed ambassador. Thanks for having us out here today. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, this is great. I'm really excited about this. So we've been having a, a kind of a rambling conversation in your studio in here in the backyard, and. Um, I'd just like to get a little bit of your backstory, your outdoor backstory of how you got interested and involved in the outdoors. Yeah, well, you know, it, like many people, you start when you're young with your uh, your parents and your family and your family experiences. And growing up in uh, the Los Angeles area, um, there's not much to get to, uh, but there are county parks and there's the beach, obviously, and then the mountains. But um, yeah, my parents, we'd go camping and take trips to Mexico, to San Felipe, and uh, go to the mountains in Arrowhead. And so as a, as a young kid, I just really was always fascinated by being outdoors in terms of like something that's wild. You know, growing up, you know, in Silver Lake, you know, in, 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 the, in deep in LA, there's not much out there except for the backyards, but then um, we did move to Norwalk and in LA County and, and there was more wide open spaces there. So you get more into like just digging holes and trying to, you know, do, doing things that are just what kids would do, like building forts and just that got me into it and climbing big trees and creating tree houses and stuff. So, and I've just always been fascinated by the, primarily the rainbow trout. I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> it's been like my, that was the one fish that as a kid, you'd have those little uh, golden guide field books and it, you could see them all dog-eared, but the, the golden trout was, maybe because it, it was on the cover of the California fish guide. And um, it, I was always fascinated by it. So yeah, I've just, I've, I've loved to fish. I love to uh, go outdoors and um, camp and as a kid, and that's where it started. Do you remember that first experience of catching your first trout? I do. It was uh, the Kern River in uh, near Bakersfield, uh, north. I guess it's Central California, but we would go and camp right on the Kern River, and you'd go out there and you'd get your, uh, I think you'd the salmon eggs or your, the Velveeta cheese ball, and then you. I had a little little bell, little copper bell that would go on the tip of my rod, and I would. My dad was. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of funny. You know, my dad's like, okay, we got to set up camp. We're all excited we're there, and it's summertime in California. And I was just wanting to fish. And I'm like, let me just cast my rod out there. I'll put the bell on, and I'll just go and help you. And and, and that's a lot for me because my dad was, like, pretty strict. He's like, no, we got to do this, this, and that. And he gave me the grace to, like, yeah, go ahead and do that. We go. We start setting up the, the tent, and that bell starts ringing, like, crazy. And, I, and at first I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and my dad's like, your bell is ringing. And I run, I'm running right to the edge of the water, and I'm right about to grab the rod, and it just stopped ringing. And I thought, no, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Afterwards, I caught a, I caught my first trout. You know, and How old were you it then? was you know, oh sheesh. I want to say I was probably like nine years old. Okay. Yeah, nine years old. So, 
you know, that, that river is just so beautiful and, um, obviously flood years and, and drought years, you can go up and down. And that first year was, I think the most perfect water temperature or water height. And, um, and yeah, I, I would just fish as long as I could and really enjoyed it. So, and you hung on to that through your early adulthood and adulthood. I mean, that ex connection to the outdoors, how, oh. did it, how did that grow and evolve? You know, it, you know, as you start growing and you start evolving as a person, you go in and out, you know, you'll start hanging out with other friends at, you know, like say you get in a skateboard phase, you just start doing skateboarding or you mountain bike and which mountain biking for me as a kid, I really enjoyed it. Um, but my friend, my core friendships in Norwalk where I lived, we would ride our bikes to the San Gabriel River and then ride all the way down to the beach and then start fishing that, that, um, that nasty water right before it gets to the ocean. And we would catch some weird fish, but I mean, who knows, maybe it was tilapia. I don't know, I have no idea what kind of fish it was, but uh, we would explore that way, which was fun. Um, but, you know, growing up as from a kid to a teenager to a, to a young adult, I've always had like that five year gap where I've focused on basketball when I was in college and then I wouldn't really do much. And then once you graduate, you know, you get into snowboarding and then you do that and still connecting to nature and then you do mountain biking and then you get married and then you like, I want to go fishing and do something like that. And I always, always do fishing was always a constant, the conventional fishing, uh, a spin reel and uh, bait and then also lures. But for the most part, um, I was always connected to, through fishing primarily. So it sounds like your, your father nurtured that in you. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was, he grew up in Guatemala. So I, I would, you know, I'm first generation, uh, American. My, my dad's from Guatemala and my mom's from Nicaragua. And so he grew up, um, you know, really living in a, in a place where you had to go hunt to, to get the groceries, you know, um, you know, my grandfather was, was a tough guy and, you know, they would, you know, say, get up at four in the morning, let's go, we're going, we're going to go hunt. We got to put food on the table, food, put food on the table. So my dad was similar, but again, he'd be like a watered down version of that. And so he wouldn't necessarily wake me up at four in the morning, but he'd wake me up at six in the morning and say, we're going to Hemet. And we actually went hunting one time. Um, and I was just always in tow and, uh, you know, we were sitting in just these rolling hills with oak uh, leaves everywhere. So every time you stepped, it was like a foot and a half of, of, of uh, debris. And that was not fun. Mm -hmm. But, he, you know, he, he tried. He tried his hand at hunting. It wasn't really something he really wanted to do. But fishing has always been, like, something he's loved to do. And I'd love to do, I'd love to do it with him. So... So you mentioned your, your, your dad from Guatemala, mm -hmm. your mom from Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference in the conservation ethic in those countries and here? And what is that? Difference? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, I haven't been there in a while. I mean, I went there when I was 18 years old. Um, but just like a lot of different countries, including our own, I mean, you don't, you don't understand what you have until it's either gone away or gone. So, um, like my grandfather during his time is, you know, we're going to go hunt and who knows if they have, they probably didn't have licenses. He just had, you know, no hunter safety, just get a rifle and some bullets and you're going to go where you think you're going to be able to hunt 
for your dinner. Um, but I think I think currently with just the way things are going, I, uh, there are different um, uh, tourist destination opportunities in a lot of these countries now where they're understanding like we want to conserve our rainforest habitat, we want to conserve our fisheries because now we're realizing that it's a tourist uh, it's a, a destination uh, angler tourist um, attraction so there's I think it's getting to a place where it's a little bit more um, on the conservation side but you still see a lot of a lot of damage being done uh, typically because the socioeconomic issues where people are just you know hey we're just living on this land and we're like you know we got to do our we got to do a laundry in the river we don't really have any other options and there's things that happen like like that but i currently wouldn't necessarily be an expert at that yeah. but i've just seen that in my first, in my 5 years of working in the fly fishing industry with sightline is mm-hmm. understanding that there are ways to to educate um, the native people of all these countries to let them know that you can conserve this resource and then you can maximize its potential and at the same time take care of it well, that's a good segue to sightline provisions. Now, let's talk about your kind of evolution and your journey to sightline provisions. And, of course, that journey brought you to Texas. Mm-hmm. So kind of fill us in. Yeah. Well, my wife and I moved here in 2004, and we were a young family, and we were trying to get away from California because <laughs> everything was just growing at a, a, a crazy pace. and we You were, were doing f- it before it was cool, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we were, we were we felt really fortunate. You know, we were young when we bought our first house there. And part of that was that I was, I was a real estate agent when I was 20. And I was selling real estate before college, you know, and during, during when I was going to junior college. And, um, and so I had a, like a understanding of the, the real estate market. And so from a young age, I really wanted to own a house. And my father was a real estate agent. So you know, we kind of worked together and we found a great little um, fixer-upper in Yorba Linda. Bought it at the perfect time. I think three months later, we could have probably sold it for another 50000 like immediately. Um, but we really took our time and, and grew into that house. And we had our my son and my daughter. And um, at some point, we just realized things are getting crazy here. Traffic, the housing prices. And we decided, why don't we just sell the house and move somewhere? And we basically almost literally threw a dart at the at a wall and said where do we want to move to um of course we heard austin was cool and had um, you ever been to texas before oh never i'd never been to austin wow never been to texas i had barely traveled I and mean, we'd gone to, to cancun or uh no cabo san lucas for our honeymoon really that's about it so you show up in texas and this is what year 2004. so what'd you think i well I knew I had to love it because we were ready to go because <laughs> we were, um, you know, we just heard a lot of great things about it. And when we got to Austin, we went down to Circle C, which is was unincorporated with a lot of uh, new homes. And but the hill country just blew me away. And I just thought, I want to live here. And my wife was like, yeah, yeah sure. It looks really cool. And it's a very nice place. And um, it was a little weird when you go to Best Buy and someone's talking in, a, you know, that southern accent that you're not accustomed to especially coming from the uh, LA County area and uh, that was pretty interesting that was endearing I was like oh this is really cool I really like it here and but you have learned the value of the word y'all right yes <laughs> yes and it, and, it, and it does pop into my conversation pretty naturally now uh, being that I'm from California 
I will say personally, and I know my wife might cringe, but I don't miss it. I don't miss, I do miss the mountains. I miss the, the ocean. Um, I miss the desert now. I mean, I appreciate the desert so much more now as an older, uh, as an older person here. Um, I'm 48 years old, but I used to hate the desert and they used to drive through the desert all the time. But now I just really, really like it. Um, it's so beautiful. And so, well, please tell me you've been to the Chihuahuan Desert in, in West Texas, and I've traveled through all of Texas. Okay. Yes, okay. I've I've driven north, That's south, so beautiful out there, west, yeah. east. Yeah. I've been everywhere. Um, but yeah, we moved. We decided to pick up our family and and move here. And since then, our parents moved here as well. So my parents live in Bastra. My my wife's parents live right here in in um, in Belterra, right right by basically on Austin um, Hayes County. Mm -hmm our Travis County, East County line. And so um, we've really enjoyed it. You know, it's it's definitely, there was some culture shock, but it was a good thing, you know. And during this time, you're a full-time working artist by this time? Yeah, so I started as a full-time artist in 2000, making art uh, to sell at art festivals. And these are juried art festivals mm -hmm. all over the country. So I would, well, at the time I was only doing the, the local, like um, Palm Springs, uh, gosh, you know, just like those really local shows to the LA County area, but I was traveling two hours too. And then San Francisco. And then when I moved here to Austin, I realized I had to do long track, like long, long distance traveling. And so the Florida market, um, the art fair market opened up and I started doing other shows all over the country. And how would you describe your work at the time? It was very contemporary. And I was doing paper sculpture and cutting paper, painting paper, and then creating these low relief sculptures that were very whimsical and kind of a, more like a like child themed. They were kind of abstract. And I had a lot of success in the nonprofit marketplace, which I had, I had been a social worker before and I started working in, um, oh, I started selling my artwork to nonprofits where they would recognize donors. And that's how I kind of began my clientele. And so I think the kid-centric stuff kind of fit into that. Mm -hmm. But then as I started doing art festivals, I started working with aluminum cans. Well, this is like doing the green thing before it was cool. And I would get aluminum cans, cut them open, and use the inside, the silvery side, and make um, female form. I would do uh, cityscapes, so like um, buildings, and um, floral-themed pieces. And, and I would do these shows, and that's how I made my living like traveling to like Florida and parking my truck there, doing a show, getting on a plane on Monday morning, fly home, make more work, and then fly back Thursday, and then like bring the unframed pieces with me and then take them to the next show and then frame them in the booth and sell them as I was framing them basically. Well, that sounds like a grind. It was, it was fun for a little bit. Like when you're young and you're, 30 years old, 32 years old, and it's exciting, yeah. especially when you're making that kind of money. Did you have time to do outdoor stuff during that time? Well, yeah, because I would, you know, especially Florida was my yeah. favorite place to go, because now I'd go saltwater fishing. And fish um, uh, in, in the Tampa Bay area, Apollo Beach, and we'd fish for shark and cobia and just have a lot of fun that way. Like, I would, I would always find a way to go fishing. And, but it wasn't as obsessive as it is now. <laughs> we'll get there in a second. Yeah. So, so segue from that to Sightline Provisions. So in 2010, um, after about 10 years of doing this art full time, 
I started making these leather cuffs. I had a bad year, like, like it's just not a great year. There's some shows at the end of that, just like 2010. I just felt that grind that you're talking about. And I needed a creative outlet for my creative job, <laughs> you know? And so I went to Round Top here in Texas. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was small. And I went to um, the Round Top antique days, uh, the vintage antique days. And I found this little um, uh, operator uh, setup, or it was a trolley operator set, like the, the hat badge and then the numbers for the lapels. And I loved it. I bought, I bought this little setup and I, put, I thought, I really like those numbers. I forgot the number, it was 2934, 29 something. But it looks similar to my sightline badge. It has a frame around it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm gonna put that on a, on a leather band, a leather cuff. And my friend Michael, she had a book, uh, she makes leather books. She used to make them here in Austin, then she just moved to, to Washington. She had leather scraps, so I went over there and made some leather scraps. I took some leather scraps, made this cuff, and I would wear it at the shows, and people would ask me about that cuff. And I'm like, I got all my artwork, and they're like, what's that? And so I started kind of making these leather cuffs based off of antiques. Fast forward to 2015, I was, this is 15 years in doing art festivals. I decided to wanna, I wanna make, rather than having to find these antiques, I wanna create my designs and then kind of make an outdoor themed leather accessory, a leather bracelet, especially for men. There's not much out there for men. And that's where I came up with creating five different outdoor designs and, um, and, and just made them simpler rather than, at the time it was called vintage wear and it was really ornate, really um, detailed work. And I kind of watered it down and I made these um, leather, at the time I was calling them leather cuffs, but then some of the fly shop owners that I was approaching to about my bracelets, because I was really into fly fishing and I saw an opportunity there with, with these shops. Mm -hmm. I started calling them bracelets because they, they said, our people don't, our demographic doesn't wear cuffs. I said, oh, well, they're, they're leather bracelets. And they're like, okay, yeah, let's talk. <laughs> and so I just started getting one Words shop. matter, don't yeah, they? Yeah. And they were thinner, so they weren't super thick. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just started building my, um, my retailer, uh, my, my SLP retailers one at a time. And I started distancing away from my artwork because I started seeing Sightline as like an opportunity to create a brand with a purpose, like I was all in. And then I discovered the fly fishing market place, which Sightline Provisions is an outdoor brand that found a home in this fly fishing market. And so I started really pushing that and um, creating more designs that were fish oriented and uh, just kind of grew that. And, and then Sightline took off and not like it took off like a rocket, but it, it, was, it was growing. Why do you think it took off? I really think that you know, a lot of guys would look at my bracelets and they're like, I don't wear stuff on my wrist. I wear my watch maybe, maybe my wedding ring, but that's it. And I think that there was just an opportunity that there's there's nothing else out there that would, like sightline provisions, the whole point of sightline provisions is to really capture, when you're out there walking in the outdoors or wherever you're in, or, or if you're in your backyard in Dripping Springs, the things that are in your sight line, 
that's what you have in that moment. So I thought, you know, okay, so sightline, and then I can make items. So sightline provisions just kind of clicked for me. I really believe that people don't really have that opportunity to have um, something that they wear that reminds them of the outdoors, especially if you're a person that works, used to work in an office. Obviously the current pandemic has changed a lot of that, but you know, you go and you'll fish, you go hunt during the weekend and then you go back to your office and you're just so insulated from the outdoors. So if I'm able to have a little bracelet on your wrist that reminds you of that weekend or that your favorite thing to do is go trout fishing or hunting or bird watching or whatever you like to do outdoors, I think that's why it's really, um, it translated really well to a marketplace that isn't the biggest, the fly fishing marketplace isn't really big. And people told me that from the beginning and I'm like, are you kidding? It just looks huge. And now I know what they're talking about. Um, but the fly shops really took hold. I really love to fly fish. So it was like this natural fit and I just really went just head first into it. So I think, I think just people were, were looking for something that they didn't know they wanted it or needed it until they saw it. And that's how I've begun, you know, sightline. I did something I needed and luckily other people have felt the same way. Isn't that wonderful when it works out like that? I feel very, after 20 years of being a full-time <laughs> artist, I've like finally made it. <laughs> so during the same time period, your passion for the outdoors is, is likewise evolving. Yes. Yes. I mean, um, if you would have told me five years ago, I'd be interviewed because I'd be part of, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, we will not be tamed campaign as an ambassador. I would have been like, sign me up. That sounds amazing. The fact that you're even in that position to do that um, would have been just a dream come true. But I think it's also just that you've, the, the evolution from a part-time, uh, a, a passionate fly fisherman that really just did it on the weekends or on a trip, I would kind of build in my fly fishing in there, to someone that like 2021 20, now probably fishes once week, once a week, fly fishes once a week, maybe twice a week. In the summertime, I probably fish three times a week. Um, that just didn't happen overnight. That was understanding your waterways, understanding the fish, understanding that you can, you don't have to fly fish for trout only, you can fly fish for any species of, of fish. And then appreciating those moments when you had them. And then recently in the past uh, year and a half, you know, learning to hunt. And, um, you know, Spoke Hollow Outfitters, who's uh, Josh Crumpton, he's the owner, he's been my mentor. He's been someone that took me in as like uh, a 46 year old guy that had never hunted before on a serious level. An adult onset hunter. A adult onset <laughs> hunting. <laughs> I love that term. You know, and, and he, he taught me a lot of the, like began that process of understanding what I'm doing when you're, you don't just go out there and kill a bird or, you know, kill an animal, you're, you're hunting that animal to, to feed, to eat, you know, and, and, and obviously the sport is still part of it. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see that evolution from someone that used to just fly fish to someone that is now fly fishing and bird hunting. And then up until yesterday, I, mean, I had my first deer hunt, which I'd never done before on my own. I'll, of course, Josh was there with me but 
that was a whole other experience that I did not did not even expect to be the way it turned out. So, um, yeah, I just I'm really I'm really happy. Business has been great. You know, business has grown every year from 2015. From the first year, it's grown exponentially every year. And then even with this past year, I think with the pandemic, no one can travel, but you can travel domestically. And obviously, there's a big surge of uh, I guess surge is a really bad word, but you know, <laughs> there's a, a, a big emphasis in, yes. in, in going to Wyoming and Montana and camping and hunting and fishing because um, right now it's kind of what we have is, is being able to travel to different places within our country. Um, and so a lot of retailers and a lot of um, brands have seen that, that uptick in sales. And um, I did too, you know, with, you know, working out of my studio here and in, in, in my home, it, it was really incredible to see that happen. So, so you, you've really evolved in terms of the types of activities you're doing outdoors now. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about a conservation ethic. How has your conservation ethic evolved because of these new experiences? It's been really interesting because, you know, my foundation was you don't litter. That's, I mean, you would think that'd be easy. Like, don't litter. Unfortunately, we see a lot of our waterways and a lot of places that there's litter everywhere. And you're, that's been my, that was my foundation to start with. As I've gotten to grow into my, uh, in the fly fishing industry and in, in, in that marketplace, I've really um, taken to a lot of these efforts, like the um, Save Bristol Bay effort up in Alaska. I've never been there, but I would like to go there one day. And, you know, there was a, a, what they call the pebble mine, which is uh, an, op the, uh, an open pit mine that's being proposed for this beautiful and like this national treasure of uh, natural treasure that you wouldn't want to ruin or destroy because of, um, you know, some of the things that you have to do when you do a big mine like that. Um, Captains for Clean Water in Florida, you know, there's... Uh, Lake Okeechobee, I think I said that right. <laughs> um, you know, the Everglades and all the water, all the impacts that are being uh, felt through that state because of wa water management and uh, big sugar and a lot of the things that influence politicians and policy and also then the environment. Um, I've worked with them to try to raise awareness and sell products and donate, you know, majority of the proceeds, uh, like up to 50% of that. We've done, I've done things with Captains for Clean Water, uh, Save Bristol Bay, even um, here on the coast um, with the Port Aransas uh, uh, salinization, desalinization, desalinization plant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've been working on that. And then this is in general in, in encouraging people to really understand what's going on in their communities and their lands and their waterways because we, like I can't address all of them and if I inspire or help other people understand like, well, maybe I should understand what's going on in my creek or my local river. And, and I guess it's just, I mean, not that I'm in charge of all that, but it's just, I think it's a, it's, it's that effect of understanding that it can happen to you and your, on your home waters, hopefully it will help protect places all over the world. I mean, 
it's not just the United States. So. Well, just coming out, and I mentioned to you that I used to live in Dripping Springs, mm -hmm. raised my kids here, was here for a long time, and just driving out this stretch of 290, it's just incredible what's happened even in the last five, six, seven oh, yeah. years, um, and how quickly that development's happening, and just how we have to be careful about how, how we go about it. Yeah, and, and even, I mean, there's groundwater issues here. I mean, there's there's... I don't, well, I don't want to get too political, yeah. but there's been issues with water being yeah. taken mm -hmm. from a property and then, you know, tra transported well, to uh, Buda well, <laughs> or, you know. San, well, you know, Texas water law is a whole nother oh, yeah. podcast, so yeah. we won't go there. Well, I actually <laughs> collect here at my home, all of our water is rainwater. That's awesome. And when we saw this house, that was pretty amazing when they said well it's actually all rainwater and uh, I'm like wait what I'm like yeah this is the whole house operates on rainwater and I was like sign me up I love that <laughs> it's awesome and it's been really nice too. so you mentioned a few minutes ago that if someone had told you five years ago that you would be asked to be a we will not be tamed ambassador you would have said what <laughs> <laughs> and and so Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation called you and mm -hmm. ask if you'd be interested in why why are you doing this you know at first you're like i'm not qualified i don't think i'm i don't i you know i've seen like jt van zandt and you know rick Whit breaker these 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 people in the industry these these role models the stewards of the wild basically um and you, and you see the names that like the first class that first came out i was just that was really cool and to see that there was that effort being Put towards um, highlighting people that that love the outdoors. It, it's almost like I, I no, I'm not even in that class. I can't even think about myself in that class. And it's not that it's humility, but it's sometimes it's fear, the fear of understanding. Like, okay, now I'm going to sign up to be like a steward of like a steward of my wild and steward of, of what the thing, uh, everything we have here in Texas. And so once I thought about it, I realized this is an opportunity to, to really level up for me. Cause I'm, I'm a guy that makes bracelets and I make leather uh, creations with my sideline provisions badges on there. And I'm an artist, but then to be able to do something to impact my, my, my state, in the outdoors was kind of like a, a wake-up call and I'm thinking you know what it's not about faking it till you make it it's like you know what I'm gonna take this on it's a challenge and I really want to do something with it and, and and create an awareness for what we have as as people here in in the in, in, in the gifts that we have because it can all go away really quick and even this past year makes everyone appreciate it even more this backyard I loved it a year and a half ago. A year ago, it was my oasis for my whole family. And so it really awakened that part for me. So being asked to be part of this campaign and be, be an ambassador for this, yeah, it's scary. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> it's not scary, I'm nervous. What are you hoping people take from it? What, do you, what message do you, do you want to share with people? I think that, I think that anyone can be an ambassador for the wild. It doesn't matter whether you're being um, celebrated for it or you're being assigned that ambassadorship. And so I think if I'm able to 
work with you guys and, and work with the foundation and really do my best to to promote you know, um, that ability to to appreciate everything we have and, and protect it, then I think, I don't know, it sounds cheesy, but if one person decides to do something about um, protecting their their the environment and being smart about it, I think that would be amazing. And so, you know, I've got a bit of a, a little bit of a voice with my brand and, and, um, and yeah, it's just what, um, that's what excites me is like to actually do something with it. It sounds like the birds are cheering you on here in yeah. your backyard. So, yeah, well, we, we appreciate your time today. And uh, I know we'll be catching up with you over the course of the next few weeks and months. And we just sincerely appreciate you being involved. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for thinking of me. And I'm really excited to be part of it. And I'll do my best to, to do everyone, to make everyone proud of having me on board. And, um, and yeah, if anyone, you know, you see, you know, my social media and Sightline Provisions, if anyone wants to reach out and have any questions about anything I talked about, you know, feel free to do that. So awesome. Thank you. Brought to you by Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, We Will Not Be Tamed calls us all to appreciate the wildness of Texas, the vastness of our Texas spirit, and why we should be inspired to conserve it. Find out more at wewillnotbetamed.org.